Welcome back to another episode of Speaking to Stacey, the podcast sharing practical advice for an action-driven lifestyle. My name is Stacey Liddell, and today I had the opportunity to speak with a former footballer and gym owner. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. If you found this conversation entertaining or useful, please could I ask you to share the episode with one other person. You never know the positive impact someone's story could have on someone you care about. This week, my guest is Ryan Buerta. Ryan had a very colorful career and has been fortunate enough to play in many different countries and leagues. He currently owns a gym in South Africa, coaches a local football team, and he was working towards his UEFA B license at the time of this recording. The three key takeaways today that Ryan shares are his advice for aspiring professional footballers, why you shouldn't compare players across generations, and how to align everything you do with your purpose. If you stick around to the end of the show, you'll find out why you need to be a continuous learner in our modern world. Ryan explains that if you stand still for too long, you will be left behind. So without further ado, I present to you, Ryan Buerter. All right, welcome back to Speaking to Stacey. Today I've got Ryan Buerter with me on the podcast. And as is the custom on the show, I'm going to allow Ryan to introduce himself. And yeah, Ryan, feel free to go anywhere you want. Hi, Stacey. First, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So my name is Ryan Burt. I'm 42 years old. I am a married man of four years. I have a little boy who actually turns 13 this year. I'm an ex-professional footballer, current gym owner with my wife, as well as a, a football coach in a third professional tier in South Africa. And that's where I am in my life at the moment. Okay, great. Nice, short and sweet. Um, <laughs> Prefer to sell diamonds, eh? <laughs> Ryan, I thought we'd start off talking a little bit about the modern game. I just would love to get your insight, seeing as, as you have a background in the sport. Um, the first thing I wanted to kind of ask you on is, since you retired from soccer, what do you think has changed in the game um, from especially from the player's side. I mean, just a personal example. I've watched football since I was around about 11 or 12 years old. And one thing that I've noticed, for example, is how different contact is in the sport. Um, When I used to watch in the early 2000s, you used to get players like Roy Keane, Patrick Vieira, that used to be very aggressive in the tackle and and wouldn't get away with those kinds of things today. You know, is there anything else that jumps out out at you from, from soccer today? You know, firstly, I think the speed of the game has changed quite a lot. Um, back in the day, you know, obviously you can get away with, with certain types of players cheating certain parts of the game, knowing that their strength was attacking. Today, I don't think you can get away with a player to cheat. You see players like Messi and Ronaldo all tracking back to do their defensive work, because it's expected. You know, it's the game is so fast and so technical today that a, a small mistake or, or a small miscalculation on a player's angles can penalise and get punished, especially the highest levels, and very quickly. I mean, the amount of goals, Haaland scoring, for example, in, in, in England, which is weird for a player in his first league time ever in the Premier League in England, scoring so many goals for free, should show you how the modern striker is becoming this fierce beast, you know, competing against his big defenders in England. Yes, certain challenges, you know, allow that now, because back in the day, maybe give it 10, 15 years ago, I was still playing. You know, you had a player like Haaland coming out, the defender generally first challenge of the game came in very physical, very rough and, and knew he knew he was in for a battle. They're a bit more protected there, yes. So it's definitely allowed for that freedom. 
Um, I think with cameras being out and about now as much as they are, players get away with a lot less. You know, um, and I think the modern game has come down more to also manage managers now than, than just players' ability. You know, back in the day, you if you had Pele in your team or Ronaldo or players of the uh, not Ronaldo, um, Ronaldinho, you, you know, back then you could get away with a player like that changing a game in a blink because you knew he was something special. You know, people always expected Neymar to be the next Ronaldinho or the next um, Ronaldo, or but but it's harder in the modern game. It's much harder because defenders are quicker. You know, they, 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 they've look at the one again, rugby has evolved. You, you can't see anymore the back line to front line. You know, it's that separation, it's not there like it used to be. You know, everyone's quick, everyone's fast, everyone's strong because the science behind the sport has changed. You're seeing more athletes coming out in soccer and, and less party animals like they were 10, 15 years ago because you can't get away with it anymore like you could. Okay, yeah. Very, very interesting to hear your take on it. I liked your comparison to rugby there because I've had a few chats to former rugby players. And one specific point that I asked uh, Nick Costa, who played in England a bit, I asked him, you know, why can't rugby teams at the higher levels get away with with playing like a schoolboy version of rugby where, you know, there's a lot more fluidity and, and you passing the ball? And he said, kind of reiterated what you're saying. He said, the level of analysis hmm. and the level of technical understanding of the game has evolved so much that if you are throwing the ball around like that and you make mistakes, you will get punished. If you're playing a side like the All Blacks and you make a couple of mistakes, you're seven points behind. And then you're in the, re- in the rearview mirror and the game's basically over. It's very interesting that there's that overlap, obviously, as, the ga- as both sports have just hyper-professionalized. Yeah, it had to evolve, you know. You can't expect the much main to be in a game and also the expectations of potential life-threatening injuries in certain sports and not have the science to back it yourself for making decisions, you know. So the game had to evolve. Yeah. The amount of, expect- of, of spectators now watching the game on a, on a worldwide scale due to television as well, you know, it's definitely changes. I mean, look at FIFA having the drama they're having with, with uh, fraud and, and this and that and bribery. And that's only because of the access you have nowadays via internet and everything else. You can't hide anymore. It's impossible to hide. Yeah. You know, so the game is it's constantly going to evolve. And, and I, I use rugby as a reference, but it's so clear to see that your flanker is as fast as your fly half in some games. He's as technical as hands in some in, in some areas of the sport because they expect them to be in close proximity, flipping things in areas you wouldn't expect them to see gaps because of the analysis and the science. You know, when I was studying to my B levels now. We were fortunate to get spoken to by Mourinho, for example, as one of, as one of the guys chatting at the American conference. And you know his amount of analysis he relies on is incredible. He films every session. When he was at Tottenham, he was saying he had every session filmed with drones as well. And it was during Jeez. COVID. So when, he would, when after the session, by the time he got back into the session, he would have analysis there where he'd asked for already. And he could send it to the players' homes via their laptops because each Tottenham player had a gym at home. So he could send them the clip he wanted them to watch. You know, I mean, that's when the, wow. when the players were on international duty. He's sending them clips because they couldn't get back before Thursday. They're playing on Friday. He goes, there's analysis. If I want you to watch this, how are we going to play tomorrow? And players understand his managerial instructions because that's how the game is about your, your, your flair. Yes, your natural ability, but about how you fit into a coach's. That's why you'll see a player like Ronaldo struggle out of Ten Hag, not because he's a bad player, because Ten Hag requires 10 players on the field, not to keep, but to press. And Ronaldo, at his age, will not give that same requirement. It's purely a footballing decision on, on Ten Hag trying to keep his job. I mean, a manager lives and dies by his decisions. You've got to be strong. He never wants to disrespect Ronaldo by my man. You know, and that happens in soccer. It's just a manager's philosophy. You know, and the game is to come down to that. The likes of Klopp, Peps, you know, all these top managers. 
I found it very interesting that whole Ronaldo breakdown there. I was chatting to a mate of mine. Also, he came on the podcast and he's a United fan. Him and I were just kind of spitballing what might have happened there. And I think maybe what happened, I mean, it's just a hypothesis, is at the start of the season, Ronaldo was probably called in and there was a conversation and he was probably told sort of how his role will have to adapt and change under Ten Hag. And so he was given that that role. And then probably very quickly, they found that he wasn't able to to keep up with the pace of the game. And then unfortunately, Ten Hag, as you said, he had to make a ruthless decision to change the man who operates up at the top of the field because he needs that 10-man press. And then, yeah, I think Ronaldo probably felt, I mean, obviously, if that is true, then Ronaldo probably felt slighted by not being backed by the manager and then everything just unravels from there with him being such a big icon and his ego and all that kind of stuff. I would I would wage to put money on that being a, a, a very accurate view. You know, I, I feel like Ten Hag coming from a team like Ajax, which is a very strong team belief and discipline structure that they've always had a strong Ajax system. You don't come out of that team being successful and not have um, strong, you know, player understanding of young players and senior players because he's dealing with especially young players Ajax. So, I, I, honestly, my personal gut feel says he exactly that. He would have spoken to him and said, "This is what we're going to play." He realized quickly Ronaldo can't give him exactly that all the time. He's more of a 20, 30-minute player when he needs him, which is probably why Gavin tried to give him five, 10 minutes towards the end of the one game, thinking he might give him a miracle because that's what Ronaldo does. He brings miracles up. Ronaldo felt slighted. He felt bruised, eager more than anything else and made a poor decision by my mind. You know, When you're Ronaldo and every kid in the world wants to be you, you can't do what you did. You can't do that. You can't get it on live TV and, or, or at least recorded TV with Piers Morgan and rip your employer a new one. You're telling every young kid in the world, you don't get your way, this is what you behave like. For me, it was a poor decision. I think maybe made in a moment of emotion and maybe wasn't thought through 100%. 100%. But that's why you forgive him, right? Because he's been fantastic for the game. You know, we all make mistakes. I'm not saying he's a bad person for it. I just, it's a, well, for me, it was a poor decision because he's so big. What he's done for this game of a Messi, they're goats. You cannot compare them being one more than the other. They are goats for what they've achieved in this game. And... It's like Pelin and, and, and Maradona. The old age debate, who's the best? You can't. They've, they were different errors and different. They did so much for the game itself. They've got to all be labeled world greats. Goats, full stop. And he made a mistake. He made a slip up. He made a poor judgment. I mean, I don't know if it was agent or someone advised him or what happened. But either way, emotional decision. And you shouldn't start things when you're emotional. Perhaps the the thinking there might have been, as you said, it might have been a a PR decision to try and actually force his move out of the club I think to so. get him out yeah. as quickly as possible. So, I mean, I can't really think of another reason. He could have done that in a way that wasn't so hypercritical and negative. But I think that that whole, the way that he did it almost was him saying, if you're not going to release me, I'm going to basically force your hand so that you have to get me out of the club because I'm going to make it like a toxic, weird environment. Yeah. That's what it seemed like to me. I agree with you. I mean, and, but and look at the flip side. You know, he, his Instagram followers went up almost 40 million followers in the last few months. Um, he, he had Al Asir of this team, or I think it's called Al Asir. They've been apparently on there waiting for a bit, trying to bring him across, even to the point where I apparently heard that number seven wasn't used this season so far until he came across. Oh. Um, look, whether it's true or not, I don't know. It's just people's talk, you know. And, I mean, it's just I, – I, I agree with you. I think it was forcing United's hand. But Ferguson, who's the biggest fan of Ronaldo, and hasn't come out and defended in what he did at all. It was in his book. He even said when a player believes are too big for United, they've got to go. You know, yep. so I do believe that he forced United's hand and he was prepared to take that massive, massive salary cut from United, knowing he's becoming a billionaire, you know, first yeah. one ever in soccer. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Mad money. Mad. 
Yeah, mad. That's actually something we can touch on a bit later. Um, before we, we go there, I wanted to jump back to something you said. You talked about you know Messi and Ronaldo and then also Maradona and Pele. There's often debates that come up, you know, who's the greatest of all time, the GOAT. Um, do you think it's fair to compare players across generations like that? No, how? You know, um, I, I think in the, in the how the game has changed today, you would have to look at a player's like, like Maradona, for example, his, his, his healthy, how he lived his life. Would he have been able to maintain this fitness requirements that were done to, uh, to, um, in football today? Pele probably because he was very clean living. I mean, if you look how much Pele got kicked. Now, if Pele had the protection of the modern day striker they had back then, how many goals would he score? You know, so how do you compare? For me, what have they done for the game in that era? Pele made football. He, he, he literally made, he became a Brazilian icon. Maradona was what Pele was to, to marry to Brazil. Maradona was for Argentina, you know, and it's the same said for Ronaldo for Portugal and uh, Messi for Argentina now, you know, they, and to compare players like Messi, Messi and Ronaldo, they six foot two to five foot six, five foot seven, you know, one's incredibly low sense of gravity, one's tall, strong in the air, different footballers, one's assists far outweigh the other one's assists, which is more of a team player, one's more using his own personal flair and he creates more goals for himself than he does for his team. They're different footballers, but if you look at the actual stats, they're quite similar. They're not that different. How do you how do you separate them? It's going to come down to your, you, our personal preferences and what we like in football. Yeah, look, feel, you know, all of that. So I think it's difficult. I think it's impossible. I think it's a great debate to have because it keeps it exciting. But I think if you had to do it from a footballing perspective and you had to go down to analysis, as we all rely on so much in the modern game. Let's analyze the game for what it was then to what it is now. Let's break it down to the small details and then see how do we compare them. So I kind of compare yeah. in Rocky Balboa, Sylvester Stallone to a modern-day fighter, how they, they, there's televised things they use computers to generate them. I don't see how you couldn't suck. It's, it's The game has changed so much, even down to the protection for a modern-day striker, as we touched on a bit earlier. Someone, I believe it was a guy by the name of Curtis Shaw, is a YouTuber, also a former uh, English soccer player he was just saying even small things like the pitch the pitch yeah. today in the modern game is like playing on a carpet whereas Absolutely. sometimes back in the day you look at at maradona's touch and you see some of the pitches where the ball is bobbling all over the place exactly. what would he have been able to do with the ball at his feet with a perfect playing surface so you can't a really georgie best compare. imagine imagine a georgie best with a medical team advising him not to drink not to party come on and get your life right how imagine what you've been like in the modern game that but that man ran miles on booze you know, so I think the science has changed and footballers are taught also better to how to look after themselves. And most actually, let's talk about across most sporting boards, you know, um, and, and that's why you're seeing records being broken. You're seeing Hussein Bolt step up and, and demolish records he thought couldn't get broken. And because the medical science is changing so much. That's another thing that I follow a lot of, um, like track and field. I follow this YouTube channel called, I think it's Total Running Productions. Um, he just does sort of, he recaps and highlights on the big athletic achievements of the year. You should see the times that, that the NCAA athletes are now starting to post um, in comparison to what they were doing, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. College athletes just running like professional level times and just the, the equipment has changed. The, prof the professional level at, at college, the expectations have changed. So, yeah, yeah I think it, it's impossible to, to really compare across times because you, what you can achieve now is a product of all the technology and the science, whereas those guys exactly. don't have access to it all. And that's across everything. You can go back 100 years and people were living until they were 14, 45, and that was considered old. 
because medicine's changed. We're not going to be living till 85, 90. If you're lucky, because mid now we're midlife at 40, 45, you know, it's all changed. You today should be achieving a lot more than what you did 40 years. Ago. What you have available to you is far more. Only thing with that comes more stress, unfortunately. Yeah, true. True. All right. And um, before we move on to talk a little bit more about your your personal highlights and things like that from the game, because you brought it up talking about sort of the money involved in soccer, do you think, perfect example, this recent transfer of, uh, I think I probably butcher his name, Mikhailo Mudrik from the Ukrainian league to Chelsea, they paid, I think with add-ons, all that stuff, about a hundred million euros. I think it was for him for a player who's essentially unproven in one of the big leagues in Europe. Do you think the the transfer market and these valuations are broken? And do you think it has a negative impact on the game or what's your take on, on that kind of thing? It's a very good question because it's, again, you can, it's a very small line, but you can, you can argue it for so many different ways, you know, how do you value a player, especially in a, in a league like that? You know, I, I would say to you that I know that clubs generally watch players for a season or two, sometimes a little bit longer, especially younger players, you know, they, and, and they analyze their injury proneness, their ability to sit into a team. So there's a lot of analytics to go into just looking at a player, which is, you know, because you can't afford to spend that kind of money on a player and they fail. I watched him play against Liverpool with the highlights yesterday and, and he really looks something special. So you know, I, I, if, if, a year's time, we might say to you, shit, they got him for a steal, you know, <laughs> because the money's changed so much and, and the game again has advanced to the point where that's a normal, a nominal fee. Do I think it's justifiable at the moment and, and where the world sits? I don't know. I think right now there is so many bigger things that perhaps certain things can money can be spent into. I mean, I, I read somewhere that they donated half this money to the Ukrainian war effort. If that's the case, it would impress me that they've actually made a decision to 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 donate money to a cause I thought they believed in. But um, it's a hard for me to answer because okay. footballers have a very short life career, and a lot of footballers after back in the day, you know, I think you had a success rate of five percent footballers who had kept money after their career. Most were bankrupt within ten to fifteen years of their careers, eighty-five, ninety percent of them because they couldn't budget. There wasn't enough money, and afterwards they weren't educated to get a job. You know. Um, today it's not like that it's changed a lot and we obviously talked a lot more handle money plus his education most of the fought two academies now to get your school done but the likelihood is not many footballers can climatize after a career being used to having fans always chanting you know, now you're a normal person post-career because not everyone's a Beckham Ronaldo gigs who's always going to be somebody after their career some will be like ah oh, there's that there's a footballer he was quality but what's the name again it changes and not all of them can adjust that their, their egos can't adjust you know and I think that's the biggest fall, uh, shortfall. So I, I want to say the money's important for some of them because it's they play for, if they're lucky, 10 to 15 years for their entire life's career of worth of money. Um, but also the, the numbers are so big, it's hard for me to argue that. You know? Understandable. Yeah. All right, cool, man. How about some of some of your background? Can you kind of break down a little bit of, of your career, where your time was spent playing football? And then um, maybe you can touch on highlights and if you want to also maybe lowlights if you have any sure um you know I, i'm a Durban boy so i was in Durban from dots and I, I ended up playing for a club called stella and that stella um was when i had a couple of english teams noticing me one was uh, fulham and one was man united so i went to united at 17 they invited me back after my trick so I, I came back to finish school for six months went back to united in the end i couldn't get a permit to stay that side being a south african boy um, so I came back to South Africa and I signed for Super Sport United at, uh, I was 18 years old. 
I was at Supersport for half a season, went from there to Wits and from Wits got sold to Europe. I was in Europe, Scandinavia for a large portion. And then I got bought by a club at well, first a club called Mupa. Love, love playing for Mupa. Played your way for a cup at Mupa for two years in a row. Uh, got knocked out the year two. We actually qualified for the second year. Got knocked out in round one. It was such an experience playing your way for a cup. Scandinavia is a beautiful a, a territory to live in. You know, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, um, Finland, beautiful area. So I really enjoyed my soccer there. It was good football compared to football. Small countries, but good competitive soccer. You know, got all the European leagues watching those leagues. You know, so from there I went to Turkey to a team called Denzi Spore in the Premier League. When I went there, we were lying fourth in the league at that stage, top league, and I ended up blowing my knee there. So I had my first Bafana Bafana call-up against Australia. This is probably was my first real pickup where I realized the importance of education and and, and what's after soccer. Um, fortunately, my parents always were right there helping me you know, as my salary came in, invest money, long-term investments and things. So I wasn't always left alone in the dark. I, I had that background support. But at 23, I blew my knee. I had a, I was meant to play Australia, at least part of the camp against Australia in Durban for Bafana Bafana. And I met Stuart uh, Baxter back in the Elangania in Durban. That's the time of my knee, and I ended up being out for tears. I wasn't meant to play football again in the end. I had a bad PCL, and a PCL is what Bobby Skins had had. He had his car accident when, you know, the head-on car collision. And back then, those things, in, they ended your career. You know, it wasn't a well-known injury. Uh, they would do maybe one PCL up a year in South Africa at that stage. It wasn't like an ACL where they were doing 20, 30, 40 a year. I, I went to a... a one of the top 10 surgeons in South Africa, well, in the world at that stage, he was in South Africa. In a big operation, which was never got full range back, but I rehabbed myself really hard for the, for the, for a year. And applying another eight years professionally. So I went back to Scandinavia, played my brother for a bit, then from there bounced back to my old club. And then from there went to Cypriot to Cypri Greek Premier League. And then I came back and played South Africa for a few years, trying to get back into the World Cup squad. Um, but it's just, it's just, there's too much behind South African soccer to make those sort of journeys uh, easy. So I ended up retiring at about 31. I thought to myself, you know, my knee's finished. It's, I've been playing 14 years professionally. Do I want to still walk one day at this rate? I'm going to really have a lot of damage. You sort of potch around, like I said, do you post football? What do you want to do? You want to try to be an agent, but to be an agent, you know, it takes a special blood in you to be an agent because it's quite ruthless in some regards. Um, I was too young to be a coach, which I felt. I was only 31, 32 at that stage. So I kind of found myself in fitness, something I knew very well. People asked me to train them. So I ended up getting a personal training degree. You know, you'll get your PT licenses. You do that. So I did via American University Online in California, ESA. And that's how my journey began. And then COVID forced me to look at my passion. And as much as I love training people fitness-wise, which I do, and I'll always do it to a degree, and my real passion is soccer. So I ended up getting back into my UEFA B license during COVID and then studied online. I'm finishing it up now. It's been over two years, should be in a year, but of COVID, you've got you know, all these online courses, lots of us doing it. So my assessment is hopefully April, May. And then, then that course allows me pretty much, Stacey, to, I could, if I work anywhere in the world as a coach, if I wanted to. And you know, I could be a Liverpool development trainer with my, that current qualification if they allowed me to, if I was good enough, you know. So it's a nice door opener worldwide. And that's where I'm currently. Wow. Okay. Jeez, you have, you've had such a fascinating soccer career because you've been in so many different places. Yeah. That's fortunate. Does anything from your journey really like stand out for you as you can look back and say that's my number one or my top five yes i'll, I'll start with my first one so 17 years old arriving in manchester 1998 going to man united um i asked do you want to train i'm like sure you don't say no you know you're the plane you tired i was training with the uh, reserve team for united back then it was players like olegan shulkshaw brian mcclair yordi crafe you know those top top footballers um and that what for me was made me realize I wanted to be a professional footballer. That was my first real highlight. You know, and then from there, heading through, uh, scoring goal this season in South Africa, it was 
it, we were playing against Bloemfontein Celtic. Uh, we were 2 0 down. Coach brought me in half time. I was used by him as an impact player. And he said, I played too direct, too European. So, anyway, so I came on half time and I am scoring a, a cracker from distance. Um, Beach High Walters, top keeper, full length, top corner. Ended up being goal the season that year, which was quite an awesome experience. Scoring two for South Africa in the first four minutes in the Olympic qualifier against Algeria. That was my first call up for South Africa. I'd made a 17 national team. Um, under 20, sorry, when I was 17. And I went to Europe from there and I got called up six years later under 23. So it was my first game. And uh, yeah, I scored a, a peanut in the first two minutes and I scored a second in the fourth and it was uh, it was lacquer. So it was a good experience. So those three for me, Fenerbahce, playing as Fenerbahce, you know, we lost 2-0. I blew my knee that game. Um, but the knee wasn't the highlight. It was walking onto that field and playing players like Van Hoedonk, who was a Dutch striker, Alex, the Brazilian captain, Tun Chai, who ended up being bought from that season to Middlesbrough in England. You know, they had a quality squad. You know, so there's those moments like that that you'll that will always stand out as for a sportsman, those key moments you can't forget. And those pop out like this for me every single time, you know. Perfect. Great. Thanks for sharing. Another thing you, you mentioned was you said you still are active in the in the soccer community and that going going back was something that you you had to do because you you're passionate about the game. What is your current involvement? I think I think you mentioned you have something in a sport in a sorry in a coaching capacity or at a, at a club or something like that. Yes, I, I coach at. Uh, so during COVID, I mentioned to you, I, I had to start studying my B license, um, and to do my B, I needed to to be coaching at a club. So I, I, I'm working with a guy named Justin Burns in South Africa, and he helps you know ex-professionals get into these courses. So anyone ready to get into these courses, I want to be a coach. And he contacted Hart Bay, who I actually had an interview with about six months before COVID, and a potential head coach, and they went to a different direction. I was a bit too young, and they felt whatever the reason might have been. And I ended up coaching an under-16 team in Hart Bay um, to, to end up getting my qualifications to finish my degree. And I was after three months coaching the 16 that they offered me the coaching for the first team in the ABC Mosepi League. So in South Africa, you got your PSL, your NFD, and the ABC Monsepi. And then, and I also now coach the Sassel team, the female team for the same club, Harpe. So I coached the senior men's team in the ABC and ABC Monsepi, and then the senior female team in the Sassel, which is the second professional league in South Africa, or second top league in South Africa. So yeah, I'm involved there, loving it. Awesome. And what is the difference out of interest between coaching the men's professional side and coaching Teenagers. The reason why I ask is I coached a bit of rugby when I was uh, in my 20s. The way that you coach, I was coaching, I think, 11, 12-year-olds. So I couldn't coach the same way as I would obviously coach uh, under 20 side because of just the, the level that, that those kids are operating at from a mental development standpoint, from a physical stand, development standpoint. Yeah. What is there is there anything that stands out to you how you'd coach differently in those two situations? You know, from under 16 onwards, you know, depending on the footballer, you know, you're starting to pull top, top sportsmen into the first team anyway. You know, so perhaps the top athletes from 16, 17, 18 onwards, you're sort of coaching towards how you would a first team player, you know, having their grounding, you, you would expect them to have their, their basic academy understanding of the game, um, on shape, movement, first touch. The younger players, obviously, it then comes down to how much time you put into their speed work, how much time you put into their first touch and basics, how much time. So the time really essentially breaks down and also how you communicate to them. But the older they get, the the time breakdown for certain specific change. You know, it's like their speed work is now a little bit less, and their football becomes a little bit more. You know, okay. So it's those sort of things change, yes. And the most important thing, obviously, is how you communicate and how you interact with them. 
Nowadays, you know, senior sport, for example, my female team, I've got players there that are 14, 15, 16 years old, you know, wow. in my senior girls team. So for me, it's more about trying to make sure the discipline matches the young being around, because the senior players must understand there's very young kids around, you know. And the same for my male team. You know, I, I, I have a 16-year-old boy from Durban training with me sometimes. From there, I've got three or four players, 18, 19, 20, you know. So I've got a lot of young boys in my, in my senior team. So for me, discipline's important and how players talk's important. This is the age thing. Fascinating. All right. I wanted to find out from you, seeing as you've got a background in, in sport, if you had to stand in front of a group of young people and they were to ask, you know, can you give advice to a young person looking to get into sport as a career? What, what did you, what would be your sort of top three things that would increase their chances of making a success out of their career? First of all, that you, you cannot beat hard work. Hard work will always out trump talent in the end. Because talent without hard work is only going to get so far. So hard work is, is, is the key to anything, but also knowing what that hard work means, you know, working specifically to what you need to do is there's hard working directional and there's just working hard to, to look like you're busy. What you want to, what you want to achieve from a professional footballer and everything targets football, your speed, your sleep, your food, your, your, your feet, how you work, how you train, everything's targeted to that. That's hard work. That's specific. All right. Um, make sure you have the right support system around you because there's going to be times where it's tough, times where it's difficult, times where you've got to go on trial somewhere where you're not happy and you don't want to go to and it's uncomfortable. Um, but being a professional sports means you're always at your comfort zone. But the bigger you get, you, you're never really comfortable. You have less time to yourself. Everyone's in your face. Once you have a piece of part of you, you know, so in actual fact, it doesn't get easier. Um, so have a strong support system, people you can trust around you, people that will guide you correctly. Um, and when you're making bad decisions to remind you of it and you'll know you'll listen to them. So hard work, strong support system, and then for me, have a strong backup plan. If it doesn't work out, make sure your education matches what you need to do. Because if that falls flat, you always need to make sure that you don't, you don't get lost in the system. For me, if you want the top three, that for me would cover a person not making choices that will ruin their life. But they can still commit to what they want to do. They still have a strong support system if something goes wrong, and they can have a fall and a backup plan. It's very much in line with, with what a lot of former sports players that I've spoken to have said. And I, I like that you included sort of the intentionality there as well. I, uh, it's something I think that as a young person, I didn't really understand, you know, that there's a difference between, as you said, working hard and working hard just to look busy or just to feel busy. Uh, one is obviously efficient and productive and the other one is just kind of like a headless chicken running around the place. Well, I mean, it's nice to think about it. Do you want, you want a professional footballer? So you go and you run five times a week. 10, 15, 20 kilometer runs. That's what you're doing. That's your endurance work. Is that specific to soccer? Are you going to run 15, 20 Ks in a game? Are you going to jog it in a game? Is that how you run in soccer? It's not how you run in soccer. So why are you going to run 15 Ks in a row? Rather go do a 10 K run at burst, work at a speed what you win a game, do one or two of them, get your, your grounding right. And then from there, it's about your speed work. How, how, where, where do you plan a football? Are you a midfielder? Okay, cool. So you're doing box to box. You're a lot of 20, 40, 60 meter runs. You work a lot of those and you get your endurance. You work 100, 300, 400, for example, because you know there might be a case where you expect you two or three shifts of 60 meters in a row. You know, so you work, that's working hard. I can tell you I'm training hard to be a footballer and you go, how are you training? Well, I train Monday to Friday, on Monday I did 10K, Tuesday I did 15K, Wednesday I did a bit of ball work. Okay, is that, is that working hard? Yes, but is it working hard to what you want to achieve? Not necessarily, no. What I'm hearing from you there is alignment. Everything's got to be aligned towards your outcome and. Absolutely. Something that I've something that I've learned as I've gotten older is obviously you need to have an, an outcome that you're aiming for. You've got to have a goal. That 
that's obviously number one. But number two is also to break down that outcome into the processes and the systems required to get you there. I think a lot of times people set the goal and then kind of run off into the, in like head first into the situation. And then, as you said, you know, you, you, you realize like, Oh, wait a minute. Yes, I'm training hard, but I'm not training in a system process driven way that is going to get me to be a better footballer or a better rugby player. Yeah. Um, no. it'll be like the equivalent of a, a lock who doesn't kick for poles spending an hour or two on this, on the field kicking for poles in the rugby game. He doesn't kick. kicking, for, kicking for poles, kicking for touch, kicking for anything because that's what he believes in mind you do. Telling a fitness client they want to lose weight. Listen, want to lose weight. It's cool. She goes into a crash diet. Okay. Is that required? Because that's what they first get with. I want to lose weight. They crash diets and they cut things out. No. You've got to be specific to you. Yeah. Cutting out food for you is not going to make you lose weight. So you might have something internal that you don't know that might affect your cortisol levels. Yeah, you should put weight on. Whatever you're doing. If you're a professional footballer, if you want to lose weight, if you want to be a doctor, you do specific to what you want to go. If you want to be a lawyer, you make sure you don't get a criminal record somewhere because you know that your seven-year degree that you've been doing for so long to get into a master's, to get your goal, is now gone because you're, of course, making weed ones. You know what I mean? So your everything has got to be aligned. Otherwise, what is, what ultimately, how is that goal going to be achieved yeah it can't be 100 percent. now that the people kind of have a understanding of, of a bit of your background and, and where you've been in the game and um where you are kind of now when you left the, the soccer behind was that transitioning for you easy was it difficult um the reason why i ask is i've had varying degrees of stories from people some people have found it extremely hard to leave that life behind and it's, you know, some people have even described it as like a part of them, like dying and almost like a traumatic experience trying to leave that, that persona behind. Other people have said, no, you know, when I was playing, I, in the back of my mind, I knew that the end of the road was coming down the line. So I started preparing and I had an exit strategy. Um, so what, what is it like for you? And, um, is there anything that either worked really well for you? Or that maybe you you could have done better that that you can share with the community that if you know if it's someone in your position in five ten years time that could help them um, if they were transitioning out of a sports. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, for me, I think it will be. I don't know how unique it might be for a lot of athletes, but my retirement was more of a forced retirement in the end. Okay. Um, so I wasn't essentially completely ready for it. Um, I think had I been still playing in Europe and I chose not to come home, I wouldn't have retired straight away as I did 31, 32 years old. I might have squeezed another three, four, five seasons out of it. And then probably straight into coaching, um, as I would have been old enough to, to sort of head as an ex-player into a coaching role. But I was in South Africa, and, and there's a lot of issues in South African soccer uh, behind the scenes. I love this country. I, I love everything we represent and what we can be, you know. But I still think there's a lot, unfortunately, a lot of elements in, in all parts of Africa, and South Africa specifically, because I'm South African, that makes us fall short. Okay, so I had other situation where I asked to be released from the club. I was at Platinum Stars. Um, I just, I, I was a first coach in my career where I, I just wanted to punch him. He wasn't a good man. He was a, he had his particular color preferences and he was quite obvious about it. He was a poor example of a professional person and how he lived his life. You know, we all knew he had alcohol in his water bottle. Um, so I just, before I ruined my name and, and I completely killed what I had built in soccer, I, t- I started to ask to be released. Club gave me a very good payout. I was, I was given such an, a, a fortune situation where they paid me a salary for a year as a settlement because I'd been a professional and they were grateful for everything we had done together. So I had a year to essentially retire on a salary, okay. which not many athletes have the fortune of. Okay, So I came to South Africa. So for me, it wasn't the financial stress immediately that, that hits into you because you've gone from X amount of earning bombs to nothing. I had that year of emotional stress lists from that, having money available to me. But the mental side was hard because you 
you missed the game, you missed playing, you know, you, you had, I hadn't prepared myself. Um, people often ask you, why aren't you still on the field? You should be playing, you know, um, because you never really had a story why you walked out, um, you know, and so mine was kind of left in the lurch in the end. And to be honest with you, it, it, I, I made peace with it, but I just felt that this is where South Africa falls short. They just let footballers disappear into the system. You know, if, if you look at the younger situation now with players, you know, they got this under situation where players have to play NFD and ABC up to 523 players ABC level. And I think it's two or three NFT. Have to, have to have under 23 players on the field. But there's no money being pumped into development South Africa soccer. So how do you find these gems? How do you develop these gems? So essentially, you're forcing any under 23 player into the situation. Then now they turn 24, they get lost. Because now they're not good enough to be to be pushed to the next level. So you have all these 24 to 27 olds who aren't bad, but really not good enough to set the world on fire. So they haven't been coached by. They were just used to, as a stepping stone. So this is where South Africa falls short for me. The, all the players that have done a system, not all get treated with respect. The younger ones most get treated disrespectfully, get paid a pittance, and there's so much money in this game. And there's a lot to still be learned in South Africa. So my, my retirement was sort of an emotional decision in the end. I had a chance to go back to, to Scandinavia to play a, a season as a player coach. Um, but my boy, little boy was, I think, two or three at that stage, and he was in Durban with his mom. So I didn't want to, to completely separate myself from him already being there was a distance between us. So to go to Europe, is I would never have seen him. So it was a decision I made to well step back from soccer and, and figure out the next step. Okay, awesome. Looking back, I know obviously you know the saying is 2020, hindsight is 2020 vision. What I'm kind of hearing there is if you could do it again, you, you would have liked to maybe just have worked through the process, especially the mental process of what it would be like to not be a soccer player and sort of have that mental preparation before just walking away from it. Definitely. Uh, I think... If you make a choice to resign from a job, you've, you've, you've mentally checked out. You've gone home, you've thought about it for every long time it takes you to check out, and you've checked out mentally. I, I would love to have had known, this is my last season, I'm going to put my effort into doing certain things, achieve certain things the last year, make it known as my last year, and, and have a different kind of farewell to the game. You know, I felt in South Africa, I never really achieved what I could have as a Latin footballer. Maybe, again, generational. You know, Had I come across 10 years later in my life, it might be a different situations in South African soccer, but when I was playing, it was quite hard to push certain barriers. Uh, I, I was literally utilizing it as a, as a, I was told it was to European. I played to direct by, by local coaches, you know. So it was always confusing for me to, to, to be able to do that same job in Scandinavia or overseas in Turkey and play there until I blew my knee. But in your local country, you're seen as a, a European, you know. It was, I mean, it, it's not just me. Stephen Pino came into that and I think he played six months and retired. And that man was unbelievable as a footballer. Yeah. So why has he come to South Africa and he struggled to enjoy the game here? Because it's not, it's not that the players coming back overseas that they've done okay there, they've done well there. Stephen Pino was incredible in Europe. It's, it's, we've got to look internally, mate. You have to look sometimes internally to fix a problem. Yeah. You know? And I, I think we don't look internally enough to sort of mix the pots and see what happens. Yeah. Do you think that is part of the reason why we haven't seen African nations having great success regardless of how much talent comes out of Africa on like these world events, you know, obviously Morocco recently surprising everyone, but do you think that's part of the reason why we haven't seen like a Nigeria or a Ghana who have seemed to just have loads and loads of talent, not being able to sort of get, go all the way? Yeah. I, I think it comes down to, uh, it's definitely not ability. You know, if you appreciate at Ghana, Cameroon, Nigeria, countries like that are normally unbelievable, strong, Big African lads, you know, play technical football. They play most of them to top European leagues, you know, just like Morocco. I, I think the difference is 
how the footballing communities run a lot of the times, where they fall short, maybe professionalism behind the scenes. I've got a feeling, and please, this is just my opinion. This is not me saying this is fact. This is my opinion. I've got a feeling that the Moroccan the Moroccan family right now is, is, is really sought out, looked after, prepped. The players are in a good stage, well looked after, um, playing at the highest level, highest league, still pulled in. Their coach is given the freedom to make choices he wants to make. I mean, if you look at the structure as a coach, he set up defensively giving possession away, knowing you're not going to compete with the France of the world possessional. You're not going to compete against these top nations with the possessional play, but you can compete in making their mistakes be punished. And that's exactly what he did. He's the first African coach to get to, to a semi-final and a third and fourth playoff ever. You know, you've got to look at, yes, the soccer being playing the field. The manager also has come a long way as a manager. It's, it's, like I said to you, the game now is about the manager as well. It's not just about the football. They've got to listen to what he wants. But his structure is counteracting their structure. But I've got a feeling that they're, they're, they're bored. I've got a feeling that things run really clean. And I've got a feeling that the bribery won't be as big there as it is in certain other African countries because there's no need for it. Got you. That's, that's just my opinion. And Morocco wants to pull away from Africa a few years back. If you remember, they want to be known as a European country yeah. and didn't get that right. You know, So they definitely don't, don't, uh, don't see themselves as African. I, uh, I think when I, when I was at university, um, I stand to be corrected, but I'm pretty sure that they are the only African nation that has not signed the African Union Charter to, to be part of the African Union. I think you're correct, yes. They actually want to be part of the EU, if I'm very correct. They tried to apply for European and they obviously got told no. Um, I, 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 I think you're correct, yes. I remember something about that as well. Very interesting. It's To them, it obviously means something that they, they don't uh, identify as, as like an African nation. They see themselves as a part. At all. Or how they work, how they run. They want to run like a European nation. You know, they want to run. They see themselves identify as European. You know, they can say what they want now about being African brothers, but the reality is what all their actions to this point have not suggested yeah. the same. Fascinating. You know? I wanted to to ask you about that crossover, that intersection between going into fitness and being a soccer player. You kind of touched on it when you were speaking earlier about how leaving soccer, how fitness felt like the natural sort of next step for you. Are there specifics that you can say, uh, I took away from the soccer field and I applied into the into business of, of being a personal trainer or being a gym owner? That, um, is there anything that, that really kind of translates that wouldn't that you wouldn't uh, have access to if you hadn't played professional soccer? I think being taught to, to read people became a strength for me. You know, being a, a left wing or a striker, you read your opponents, you want, to, you want to see what they're moving, analyze, any weaknesses, are they strong here, are they weak there? So watching a person train in front of me, I could see short, sort of things fall short. I can learn to motivate them. What motivates them? What doesn't motivate them? You know, the way I train people is more holistic than, than come to get a six pack. I don't believe in training to get a six pack. I believe in training to your personal goals. So if that's all sport specific, that's coming out of my sport background, discipline, professionalism, uh, respect, being punctual for my clients. You know, what I do is about selling time. You know, I'm not going to respect your time. How can you respect what I'm trying to sell you? You know, and, that, and my sporting background would suggest always being on time. And what I see in South African fitness levels is not even takes what they do seriously. Fitness here is a hobby for the person at school who doesn't know what they want to do. It's not a passion for a lot of them. It's a guy who got stuck or a girl who got stuck not knowing what's the next step after school and fitness looks fun. But you can hurt a person you're not passionate about. You can generally really hurt a person or you can actually demotivate them. 
you know, so from soccer, what I pulled away was really people motivating them. How can I analyze? How can I make it best for them? Fitness with also don't forget that injuries come into play sometimes. I have incredible patience with injuries. So a lot of my physio, biosphere, bios friends send me patients that I know I'll be patient with and work them through and around injuries if needs be. So my sporting background has helped in that regard. But where it didn't help was that you have to forget the average person can't do a box jump of a meter two. You know, they, they, <laughs> they, they, they literally struggle 10 centimeters, some of them. You know, so I had to really teach myself to really go back to grassroots uh, when it comes to, to the basics of fitness and what they should look like. Okay, that's very interesting. I'm just having a flashback to when I coached for the first time, like the 11, 12-year-old boys. And I was, I think, 20, 21 myself. So I was also not really, I think, mature enough to realize it at first. But my expectations of the boys were like here when I arrived there on my first day at practice. And then I very quickly realized, oh, okay, wait a minute. They're not where I am in, in terms of physicality and mentality. So I need to kind of really water this down. No. Some some of them haven't even had their first test birth. They haven't even had their first growth spurt. They're still lanky and weird and awkward. And so that's that's where it comes down to training a person specifically for themselves. And that's what my gym's about. You know, I didn't want to be a PT. Trust me, I used to teach PTs. I ripped them in a new arsehole when I was a youngster. For me, it, it was, I got asked afterwards, after football by a guy who had a, a business called Sweat in South Africa, do I want to help him train there? Yes, I remember and Sweat. I, and, and I said, no. And he's like, look, I like your vibe. And I think we're fun. And we're trying to grow this brand. And he's like, cool. I'm nothing to do. So I ended up doing it was fun. And I got asked there to train people personally. I'm like, I'm not a personal trainer. And they were like, yo, but you know sports and how to lose weight. And anyway, long story short, I started doing a, a, training a friend as a favor. But she went to school with a friend of mine. And she ended up losing a, a hell of a lot of weight over a few months and going from a 15-second plank to a three-minute plank after having two cesareans. And then all her friends went to join me as well. And so I, I had to get my PT. I had to go online. I had to do something I could do within six months, not a year or two. So I did that. And then that sort of fell into my lap. And, and, and I really enjoy it, I'll be honest with you. But it's... I gel with certain types of people, people who enjoy what they do. And this is a, a filler to balancing their lives out. I struggle with those who come to you to fix their life. Mm. Um, because I can't, fig- I can't fix your life. I can definitely help you figure a balance of your life. You know, I'm not going to fix it for you. That's not my place. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you know. Yeah. So uh, that's not my, my forte. Yeah, I think uh, I've also done my PT license. I, I haven't used it uh, really. I just don't have really the time. I've also done a bit of amateur bodybuilding. And, you know, what? When I, when I went through that experience, I realized it really, you can have the best coach in the world. Um, I had a very good coach helping me uh, kind of from a distance because I couldn't afford to have him um, as a full-time coach. He was kind of uh, more of a mentor than anything else. And, and, and what I realized is that it's, I mean, something that my dad would uh, now smile me he- hearing me say this because he'd been telling me this since I was a young boy, you know, like you can take the horse to the water, but you can't make the horse drink, you know? So I also think it's a societal thing. I, I feel like we live in a world sometimes where people, the expectations are, well, if I join a gym and I, and I get a personal trainer, I'll look better in two, three weeks time. Everything will be great. It's like, no, well, how long did it take you to become unhealthy? And it's not going to be, the quick, easy process that, that you expect. And if you're not willing to put the work in, you're not like personal trainers on miracle workers. Um, we can give you like principles. But that's the thing. Like they come into you one hour a day, Stacey. So they come into me one hour a day. They got 23 hours in that day to mess up the work I've done in one hour. You know, so I'll tell the guys and girls, listen, ladies and guys, you got, you understand something. You come into me for an hour, three times a week or four times a week. So three to five to six hours a week, whatever it might be. 
think about the hours around that you have to ruin what the work you put in here. So for me, when you're coming here, you must know what you're coming here for. Again, that alignment. You know, are you coming here to move, to get your endorphins, to feel like her? Or are you coming here to lose a lot of weight? Can I pick up some muscle? Because whatever that reason is, whatever that why is, that's going to motivate you, first of all. Second of all, make sure you're in line with that works towards where your goals want to be. And I'm okay. I'll, I'll label clients. I'll have, out of my 30 or 40 clients, I'll have 10 clients who are goal-driven, like specific must-feel achieving something. And I might have 10 to 15 who want endorphins, want to feel healthy, don't want to be out of shape, don't want to be ripped like six-packs, just want to feel good, you know. Then you're going to have your 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 ten clients who come and go. They're business clients. They're in for a week. They're gone for two weeks. They're back for two weeks. They're gone for three. And I got my five that you kind of label as like, you know, that's going to be mentally draining. Those are the vampires. When they leave, you'll be shattered. You don't want to sleep. Um, yeah. And I try to avoid those. If I'm honest with you, I, I, I'm a loud oak. I, I talk a lot. I've had to go into chain rooms often to meet and, and, and knock Oaks over to meet me, to like me off the bat, not an issue with me. It's not the ego's collapse. So I'm good at dropping my guard to be cool with people, provided you're the same with me, you know? So if you come in and you're emotionally draining, I struggle with that because I, I wear so much of it. It's my nature that it just kills me. I'm, I'm fatigued and I don't do well. Some of the things you're saying are just ringing so many bells for me, but in completely like different ways. I, I read, I've read the book maybe three or four times. It's Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. And he said, you know, he realized he was going through, I think, almost like a nervous breakdown with his first business. And he essentially sat down and looked through his business and his customers. And he realized that 20% of his customers were actually driving 80% of his business, kind of breaking it down into that 80-20 principle type type thing in business. And he said he just realized there were clients that he had on his books that were providing him with so little value. And he was jumping over backwards for them. And sometimes you, I mean, it's, it's not always a nice thing to do because you, at the end of the day, you, you wanting, as a personal trainer, you wanting to help them to change their life and to, to help them improve. But mm. if they are, as you said, energy vampires and sucking and taking away from you, you got to really ask yourself if it is worth it to, to continue working with them. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that that kind of a thing pops up in business. It pops up as a personal trainer. I'm a teacher, so it pops up for me as a teacher as well. You know, like you see the kids that are invested. And you can't avoid it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You see the kids that are invested in the education and they take it seriously. And then you get the ones that always come to, late to class. They never, there's books always missing. Where's your book? Oh, yeah. I've lost my book. And look, at the end of the day, you're an edu- I'm an educator. So I want everyone to, to thrive in the classroom. But yeah, it does boil down to that. They've got to meet you halfway. Yeah, that boils down to the principle of, I can only do so much for you. At the end of the day, you've also got to come to the party. You exactly. got to you got to buy in as well. Hundred percent. Otherwise, otherwise, it's, it's just you're going to end up butting heads, and then the characters will get involved, and end end up no one no one wins. You know. Yeah. So for me, like the gym that my wife and myself have created, anyone is welcome, no matter what you look like, size. You walk and you get greeted. You want to feel part of something, you know. So vampires generally don't last too long there because it's an upbeat kind of place, you know. Um, so the place itself generally flushes that energy after a few months, but it's it's important to to make sure because COVID, like you just said, you know, as a PT, you want to change people's lives. You know the importance of training for endorphins, and it does it. It's something that quite simply combats depression without putting anything down the throat, pills to numb the depression. You know, because it's a natural endorphin. Um, so uh, my 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 flaw is that I will lower my rates if need to be during COVID. 
And now it's trying to get it back to the degree where you can survive in a tough period of time already and balance it out where, as I said, meet halfway where they can afford it and you can afford to survive because since COVID has been PT has become a very interesting place to navigate. Very interesting place. Can you elaborate? What what is what is it exactly that you- people so you get those who are still wary of training in gyms. You get those who are wary of spending a buck because they're losing so much buck away at work. Clients, their, their salary has been reduced. Whatever's happening, most people are tightening up. So we're an extra expense, first of all. So you're going to get you're getting the extremes now. Those who are seeing a lot of value in the buck they're spending with you. Those who are extreme wealth, you also want to still get the results. And those who are trying to negotiate, you still survive. I can't afford to still train like they used to. And, and so you, 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 as a trainer, you caught in this, this fluctuation of rates. Where do you meet halfway? Where do you be fair? Where do you, what, you know, at what stage do you also, they want to change time because life is changing. Things are changing all the time. So times aren't as set as they used to be. Travels change a lot of things. For example, in Africa, and one of my trainers is a lot of his clients are, are wealthy clients, businessmen who don't want to come home right now because they're, 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 they're being taxed, you know, ridiculously to bring the money back is too difficult. So, like, you, you, as a, he's a high-end PT and, he, you know, his recovery's been hard. So, he's now trying to look into the more two and threes in a small group, you know. So, you're seeing, I'm seeing an interesting shift. The trainer coming into this world, so the trainer born during COVID, was was born to hustle, was born um, training clients behind the closed doors. They couldn't be seen training clients because you were meant to close your doors. You know? and, and I've seen those growth of clients. You saw the gym that survived during COVID and the, the gym that didn't survive. You knew who functioned, who didn't function during COVID. All right. So, those oaks... They've thrived during COVID because they still picked up clients during COVID and they thrived. The ones that had to shut shop for a while, it's been a bit of a, a stall to get started. And I've seen some of those trainers really struggling to get going again, really struggling. That's fascinating. That's so interesting. Wow, I didn't even think about it like that in terms of if you were entering the game as as the game was sort of changing and, and in a dynamic space and you were able to survive that, you walk out of that with a hell of a lot of lessons learned. and P- Plenty. Yeah. You picked up all the clients, other guys turned away while they couldn't work. You picked up those clients still prepared to pay and train, which means that they're, they're going to stick with you. So every trainer was trying to survive. And, and eventually, you know, a lot of us tried to to stick to the rules because certain of you always will get popped out in general and picked out and you get found, you have that bad luck, you know. And the Oaks, you happen to get it right. And in the right areas, they could hustle just as they came out into normal salaries. The rest of us were trying to rebuild again, you know. So it's, it's I mean, I had to close my, my last business down. During COVID, it just, it just became too excessive. You, know, you pick up your, your rent, you can't survive on four months of having the shop closed. You know, it's, yeah. it's crazy. So if I have no debt, you've got 600 grand in debt all of a sudden in a blink. My wife, we closed and my wife and myself restarted something else together. So it's, it's been an interesting period to navigate. Very interesting period to navigate. And, and, and also now in Cape Town, a lot of it's changed because you've got these little domiciles popping up in the CBD. People, you know, building little shanty towns. So the safety's changed as well. So, you know, where your gym is situated becomes important. You know, town used to be incredibly safe in Cape Town. It's not so safe anymore. I came back to South Africa last year just to visit, and my wife and I got married in 2021, but we weren't able to come back home and, and celebrate. So we came home in August of last year to do the whole ceremony and everything. You know, my dad told me, he's like, when you come, when you drive around the CBD area, just take a look at, at the homelessness situation. So I didn't obviously didn't have a yeah, didn't scary. have a point of reference because I hadn't been home in, in two years and I could not believe it was three years actually I hadn't been home three years. I couldn't believe the explosion of those uh, of those little homeless pockets yeah. and there's that one place is it in Greenpoint near the one tennis club by the is tennis courts yeah jeez yeah. I could Bad, not eh? couldn't believe it couldn't believe it 
No, it's bad. It's very bad. You know, and so, and now it comes down to humanity. You know, you you, you want to be fair. And you want to go. It's it's so rough this lifestyle, and but also it's 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 brought to the element in where so say say the population has grown to a thousand living like this now. In that thousand, you might have two hundred or very just down and out trying to survive. But there's so many of the other elements that are just like one of my trainers got stabbed two o'clock in the morning three or four times without any question. They jumped out of the bush and they stabbed him for a cell phone. They even asked him for a cell phone. You know, it's that kind of recklessness. So it's, um, yeah, where are you situated in Cape Town has changed. You know, my wife and myself, we've bought out of Cape Town. We don't want to live in Cape Town anymore because you can't walk 10, 50 meters without someone stopping you for money. It's, 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 it's changed a lot. So yeah, navigating South Africa right now is an interesting time. Sorry to keep this a bit negative, but it just would be interesting to ask you with the whole uh, load shedding and ESCOM situation, does it impact gyms as much? Because I know with gyms, obviously, you have a lot of free weights, so you're lucky you, you don't need to be on the grid for that kind of stuff. But then you've got your machines yeah. and, and your lights and your aircon. Does it Has it impacted business in any way, having having the load shedding? It has to a degree. You know, obviously, my wife has classed at nice and her class all aerial based. So think circus like pole, lira, silks. Um, you know, so you need to see what you're doing. So when you have load shedding, it definitely, definitely affects her classes. Early hours in the morning of the client during winter, 6 a.m. is pitch black for a client. So you'll pop up these little lights. Fortunately, we can make do with Bluetooth radio speakers and you know, you can still keep your Wi-Fi going to a degree, but it does, it does cause difficulty and also now it causes problems in street lights. If you want to park outside, is it safety okay to run across to get into the gym by yourself if you're a female at 5.45? So many things come into a situation and we got to start thinking about it out of the box, you know? So, this load chain situation in South Africa is really frustrating. Um, I think what if you want to look at the silver lining to it, I think it's getting the vast majority of South Africans to now step up and go, well, hang on, there's a problem here. Hmm. This, this government's saying X and they're doing Y and they've been doing Y for 20 years and we need to do something now. So it's, it's forcing everyone to go, wow, what is, okay, this is not cool, you know? Yeah. So the silver lining is that, is that something's got to change. Either it's going to be the situation to be fixed or they're going to be out and the next person must try and fix it. So if you want to try to be positive, I feel like that's a potential silver lining because there's been a lot of talks of standing up now to go against this and, and needs to get sorted out. Um, but the reality is you're seeing a lot of businesses not surviving it. And, and that, that's the worry is that it, you're going to start separating. The, you're going to have you know, my wife's earlier, you're going to start getting the top and the bottom class. You're not going to get this middle class. You're going to get this massive separation. You know? um, and that's, that's, it's scary because in Africa, that doesn't always end up well. Something you said there was very interesting about the, the how, kind of everyone's waking up to it now and i think it's because things like water and electricity are generally essential services so it doesn't just hit the poor oaks and the rich oaks and the middle class it hits everybody across the board everyone yeah not forgetting they're still trying to increase our rates so eh? for yes just, yes they I just approved a 32 percent increase i mean it's like you know you can't be the fourth biggest earning company in the in the country but you you can't supply a service what are you doing like there's, there's a problem there somewhere, you know. Yeah. Anyway, is what it is. <laughs> the South Africa, the the plight of a South African. It's it's hilarious yeah. to. Is what it is. We're resilient. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's for sure. Um, it definitely breeds resilience in in South Africans. It's so interesting speaking to foreigners. I mean, in South Korea, there is. It's very difficult to explain to them to communicate to them what load shedding means because it's so far outside of their reality that they're like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean there's no electricity yeah. for like eight, 10 hours yeah. a day? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, they've got no oh, idea. Cause no I mean, idea. they're highly connected society as well. Everything is online. Everything is um, free public Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. So if, if their power went down, they would be in panic mode. 
Yeah, I can imagine. All communication will stop. <laughs> yeah. It would be yeah. it would be chaos. You spoke about the the vibe in your gym, sort of how you it's positive and it kind of weeds out the, the people that, that aren't that, that way inclined. How does one go about creating that culture or that experience in the gym? And then how do you sort of promulgate that? How do you but how do you get buy-in from your staff, from the people that come to the gym? Is it something that you proactively are, are doing or is it just like infectious so it, it kind of it, people buy in naturally? Um, I think it's infectious. I think that either you, you buy into or you don't. You know, um, I, I live it. I am that person. My wife's the same. We are very welcoming people. We greet everyone walks in the door. We are naturally those people. You know? So we live that. Okay. And, and I'm a firm believer in doing doing creates a feeling of it, it, it either feeling right or not you know and those you want to join with you will get behind you and you all do the same feel and those you don't we're in a parting ways and going somewhere else you know and, and it happens by itself you know i've been doing this now seven eight years I've, I've had a lot of pts come to my doors and i and the ones that stick are the ones that generally have the same feel as me they see the same journey they have the same beliefs and and they want to make it work you know some want to make it work but can't you know i demand professionalism so I, I, it's like, you know, I expect, certainly for my trainers, my trainers don't do it with bad heads. I expect my trainers to be friendly, always greeting people. Um, but my, the guys, like I said, I stick around and do it anyway naturally. They are those people. And I never want anyone to ever feel objectified or judged. You know, my woman, my, my wife has a lot of women coming through her, her class who are built a different way or are doing a sport that's not consent, considered to be a normal sport, you know, especially like pole, for example, there's still a negative connotation towards it. So, the type of people I have in my space is incredibly important as to the vibe you build. Okay. Um, and like I said, the people, the same, same likes stick around. Okay. That's interesting. So it's almost like a bit of self-selection bias. Those that fit into that mold tend to stick around as a result of kind of naturally being inclined to, to be ahead that, in that way. It's not, it's not, it's not foreign to you, right? It's, it's, that, that feeling is not foreign to you. you. You, you feel good and it makes you feel uncomfortable. And, and I promise you, I've had sh- I've greeted people, Stacey, I've greeted people for like two years. Every day they walk in the gym, hello, hello. And for two years, I've just got like this look. And eventually that first hello comes and after that, I've seen people with the coldest, either they're shy or they're insecure or they're just dickheads, whatever it might be. Generally, the shy, insecure ones break up and open up eventually say hello. The dickheads eventually leave because they're just, they're, just, they're dickheads, right? They're just not nice people. So they eventually find their own way at the door. Yeah. And also uh, another thing I hear you saying there is the, the fact that it's authentic. I think, yeah. um, if you go, if you go to a gym for long enough and you get to know the people in the gym, you know, if it's an act and a gimmick and you know, if it's how the people are and how they operate. Um, I agree. like I, I prefer, I, I'm the kind of person, I'm, I'm quite a straight person. Like I don't, I don't really like to beat around the bush. And unfortunately, not everyone enjoys that kind of style because it can be seen as a little bit heartless or a little bit tactless. Yeah. And so oftentimes, actually, I've met people for the first, second time and they've walked away from the conversation being like, oof, geez. And they will tell a mate of mine, oh, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure if I like your friend. He's a bit hectic. He's a bit, he's a bit straightforward. And, and then four, five, six meetings later, that we become real, real tight and, and friendly because they learned, oh, that's actually him being genuine. And I know that if he's going, if he tells me something, yeah. it's because it's the truth, and he's not going to bullshit me. Exactly. My wife's saying, my wife's straightforward. She says what she means, and 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 some take offense to it, but she's she's always saying from a good intention, yeah. and 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 she says it straight as it is, yeah. you know. And people either love that her for that, or they just find her in her face and they, and they struggle around her. But generally, it's people who can't take the truth. That's true. Yeah, that's it. Maybe a bit of a generalization, but I found that it's often 
not you. It's the person that's unable to deal with something in themselves that then is like sort of pushing back and projecting outwards from them. So maybe the last two things I would like to find out from you. You spoke a little bit about how dynamic things are at the moment, how things are changing a lot. I know it's difficult to say because as COVID showed us, the world can change so quickly. But if things kind of keep going the way they're going at the moment, where do you see the business or the industry in the next two, three, four years? Do you see, because obviously during COVID, there was a lot of online training, for example. Do you see that as a trend continuing? People are are realizing they don't need to go into a physical space anymore? Or do you see it kind of like it fracturing in two different in, where there's some that do, some that don't? What do you think that the industry looks like in three, four, five years time in terms of growth and everything like that? I think you, it's going to split. So I think what's going to happen is now you're going to get those people who, who want professional training but don't need motivation will go online. They'll get their programs via the online source, plug it in, go for a run, put it to a big screen at home, whatever. And I think you'll have those in the gym now who purely need the motivation. So those who want to come in, they need a trainer to talk to them. They need that, that guy in the ear, that, that partner they don't have to train with next to them. Whereas before, like I said, you had athletes coming in to, to me to get the session they require. Whereas now they can go online, they can Google speed work, and, you know, footballer, football pops up and they're disciplined enough to do it by themselves. You know what I mean? So I think you're going to get desperate. You know, I, I did create an online platform, Movement Empire. I was one of the guys who created it. It's still there. It's ticking along. It's growing nicely. But again, that's going to now shuffle into a market. It will go towards people who enjoy training by themselves, who don't need much equipment, who like functional training, who want to increase flexibility. For the athlete to watch a session, while they're on holiday, because you can do a really advanced head session, it will make you feel like you're still keeping your fitness up. You know, it's, it's going to find its own sort of marketplace now. What I have seen is that PTs who are fly-by-night, the guys who aren't professional, they start to struggle because people are looking at their buck a bit more, how they're spending it now. And if you're not going to appreciate the time and respect their time, you're not going to get the professional service um, and meet the requirements, then you, you're going to struggle as a PT. That, that, that out-of-school person, you're not sure what they want to do anymore, that PT job is going to be a difficulty now. Interesting. Okay, so you're going to use – you're kind of seeing it – it's the people that are in it that are in it for the right reasons that are there because they're passionate. They love it. They, they, that's what they want to get out of their life. They're not just there because I kind of, I don't know what I want to do in a way. That's also another silver lining because you in moments where the economy is suppressed like that, you do see a washing out of, of the riffraff and the quality rises. The ones hanging on, they can't survive. They need to get washed out near the rebirth, the regrowth. They will find their place somewhere else, but they also need to get their little knock on the new door. And because you can't just keep ticking on, you're not going to be, you're not going to achieve anything. If you're always comfortable, comfortable breeds, it breeds this, 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 this place or this area of, of no growth. Yes. So if you want to grow, you've got to constantly just be stepping, you know, as a teacher, pushing those kids to out their comfort zones, that, that realm of where they are uncomfortable and they're asking questions and why am I doing this? And that's where they're learning. 100%. You know, it's the same in fitness. It's the same in football, same in coaching, same in life, same in education. As they hit their comfort zone, you make it a little bit harder, a little bit harder. You can't see raising that goal without them seeing it. So that, yeah, that, 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 that professionalism is important. That change is important. Yeah. And I think also in a, in a very interesting way, it's probably good for those people as well because they will then bump into the reality that actually, you know what, this isn't for me. Let me go and find my true calling. Let me go find what I actually am passionate about, self-reflection. And then, you know, that, that happened to me. I, I went and worked in finance straight after university. But I was very much in a, uh, like a salesy, cold-calling role. And I absolutely hated it. And uh, in the beginning, when I, when I left the job, I 
I felt like I was a bit of a failure and I, cause I hadn't succeeded. But then when I really sat down and thought about it, I was like, you know what? That was actually a great experience because I now know that that is something that I don't want to do. I don't ever want to be sitting behind a phone, 100%. banging the phone for two, three, four hours a day, calling a hundred, 200 people, begging them for their, for their business. So yeah, it, it, in a way. But you either built for that or you're not. Yeah. You either built to, to do that or you're not. You know, you were, we call, call it the man, call it what you want. Your education structure was funneled you into one direction. And you had to get to the point where you were like, fuck it, I'm actually going to enjoy this. I want to change my direction. I want something that I'm passionate about. And this is where you learn. Yeah. It's the same. You, we're all in some stage, and, up, and that's what's changing now, is we're in this realm where everyone's accessible to see what they want to do. You're not just being forced into one direction where, oh, you're actually left-handed? No, we're teaching school to write right-handed because that's what we're taught to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so much is changing in the world today. And either you're open to learning that, or, or, or and, and hitting on and riding with it, or you're not, and that's where you're going to start seeing the split. And I kind of feel like COVID, in some ways, was the cleanse in that way. It's just be weird and and seeing relationships with people being together for ten years and now being forced to stay together three weeks and they couldn't survive the relationship and now just friends because they realized they were just always friends. You know, you've seen COVID. Unfortunately, did a lot of a lot of bad, but did a lot of good in some ways as well. Yeah, I think it's so interesting what you said there about the left-handed thing. <laughs> I was I was one of those. Like mm. I was left-handed, and then. I was uh, just out of habit. Everyone kept on putting the thing in my right hand. So out of habit, I became right-handed. Exactly. And then I started, as I got older, I started struggling finishing tests. And at first, they thought it was because my reading and comprehension speed was lower. And I went to this woman. I can't remember exactly what her role was, but she was something, must have been like an OT or something along those lines. And they did all these tests, and they worked out actually that my left hand was dominant. But because it had never been used, it, it kind of has, has regressed. But I mean, I can still, if I pick up a pen, I can still. Like anything works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that was the reason why I was actually slow. It was because I'm, I've been using my weak hand all this time without knowing it. Interesting. I'm a left, I'm a left footer, but I'm a right hander, which means I probably was forced into that learning to teach the right hand to right. I mean, I'm, I can't be a left footer. It's unnatural normally to be a, and my dad was the same, left foot, right hand. So he was also taught in school to write right handed. So it's, but that's what I'm saying to you, you know, this is all, change there's so much change in the world where you can be free to be whoever you want today and it's being acceptable yeah you know it's 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 it, the world is changing and we have to we have to be accepting of that and and find our place in that and just continue to grow from there yeah i think the last thing sorry brian before we before we wrap up that point of, of the changing world I, I watch a lot of successful people on youtube and things like that and the one thing that i've heard a, a lot being said about this year and and the and the last couple of years with COVID is that if you are aiming to be successful in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you have to come to the to terms with the reality that the world is no longer a static, go to university, get your degree, go and work in, no. in the business for 10, 20, 30 years and leave. If you're not ready and willing to learn continuously and adapt, you are going to, you won't survive. And the, the most successful people yeah, in the next 10, 15, 20 years are going to be those people who are, who are who are malleable who can adapt to the changing yeah. and do it quickly well you have to i mean if you know if, if let's use COVID as long as we talk about COVID now so during COVID, our gym was taken away from us we we're told cool you can't get pt you can't work you wait for it to open up again okay cool and then what if it doesn't open up again you've got to look to grow so i went back to my soccer my wife went and you know back into her dancing and she looked to grow a line there and and we we, we use that experience to, to sort of re, the rebirth and, and the redirection of what we want. And we knew we had to hustle because we know it could rely on one income. If you were that person sitting down 
and going, I'm going to wait for the World Cup. I'm going to use a nice little three-week holiday. You were going to come out very shook because so much has changed. And you would have found that you would have collected so much dust because you've been static for so long, like you just said, that things would have rolled by you. And when your company looks to regrow, you're the first to get cut because you're the one that's holding it back. Yeah. So COVID taught you if anything was you have to constantly be on your ball. As the world revolves and changes and moves with moves forward, you're going to make sure that you're moving forward in the way you can, and whether it be studying your next capacity or for me, for being a coach, it's my 11 hours studying every two years, but that's my way of progressing. You've got to do it because if you're static for a second, like we said, and I'll take it back to my understanding or to a soccer, look at a coach. Klopp, this year for me, is at a reinvention of a coach because he's brought a player like Nunes in who's a different type of player to what he's used to. You know, for money, who loves the ball at his feet, you go down and have Nunes who gets the ball behind. It's a typical out-and-out nine. It's a different structure. He's trying to redesign his structure because you have to because if you play the same way for so long, you get caught. Yep. This year, it's him trying to redesign, which is why it's all going like it is. He's brought some new players. He had some bad injuries. He's trying to regrow at the moment. That's why it's uncomfortable. It's important. Pep's do the same. You know, he brought from Haaland. Just he's got a lot of talent around there and a lot of money and it's a bit easier process for him. But the reality is, if you don't, at, at the highest level, always look to evolve what you are doing, you are going to be falling behind. You're going to get left in the, work, in, the, in the dark. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. It's the most exciting thing or the most terrifying thing about that whole process is, in my opinion, it's only going to accelerate. I mean, look at the, the latest thing now with, with all these these chat AI bots that are coming out and people are using them to generate coding, to generate uh, writing ideas and things. That is a, that's the next thing that's coming. And that is going to completely change the way the way that business and things works. And then what? What for, the, what for human beings are now out of, out of jobs? What happens to those people yeah. now who are forced to grow? Yeah. Then what? It's scary. No, Stacey, it's scary, mate. <laughs> yeah. I would love to. I'd love to um, to continue, but I mean, you're, you've given up so much of your time, and I really, really appreciate you sitting with me for an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> is there is there anything that you'd like to add um, that you didn't didn't have an opportunity to share? And can I di- can I direct people um, towards your Instagram or anything like that, or your your a website or something like that, where where I could. Direct them so that they can check you out. Yeah, look, um, I've just actually cancelled my website. You know, I just got to a stage in my life where I thought, do you need a website anymore? You know, um, with Instagram and things like that being around. So Instagram is, is it is at Ryan underscore Boots on my Instagram. Um, any questions, anything regarding football, fitness, life? I try live my life the way I believe. It's the positivity, you know, um, and that's like I said, you know, it's it's interesting. That you learn so much about yourself in so many different regards, and COVID was a big lesson for me in so many different ways. So yeah, if you want any questions, at Ryan Ashkobot on Instagram, and yeah, appreciate it. Awesome, Ryan. Really, once again, thank you so much for giving up so much of your time, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. As we come to the end of this week's episode of speaking to Stacy, I want to say a big thanks for listening all the way through. I hope that you have found some value in Ryan's insights. Before you go, I have one last favor to ask. Please remember to subscribe to Speaking to Stacey. That way you'll never miss new episodes. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a rating and a review. It helps others find the show. Remember, the more the show grows, the easier it is for me to continue to bring you beneficial content. In next week's show, I sit down with Dr. Ryan Fuller, a cognitive behavioral therapist. We talk about some practical CBT strategies 
you can use in your daily life. I hope you enjoyed the show today and I look forward to sharing this experience with you again in the next week. Until then, keep well.